The way in which we operate is defined in large part by our memories. Memory is a core component of the human identity. In this show, we hope to explore the nuances of this fundamental aspect of our brains. These conversations aim to illustrate the strengths, weaknesses, and mysteries surrounding remembering and forgetting. I'm Isabel Nieves. And I'm Tanner Chalet. And this is Remembering and Forgetting, a podcast by Themester. When we watch dancers perform, the external performance and aesthetic can be a beautiful sight. What we don't see or feel, however, is the internal experience of the dancer. On this episode, I talked to Liz Shea about focusing on the internal experience of the dancer through somatic dance and how we can train our memory through dance. Um, on this episode, we're speaking with Elizabeth Shea, an associate professor of theater, drama, and contemporary dance, and director of the Contemporary Dance Program here at Indiana University. How are you this morning, Ms. Shea? I'm fine. How are you? I'm doing also just fine. So I did a lot of research on you, um, and what I gathered from my research is that you are a specialist in somatic dance making and dance practices. Can you explain this type of practice to our listeners Mm -hmm. and what it involves? I can, Um, and I'll just sort of preface it by telling you a little bit about my interest in somatics because it stems directly from my work in in memory and, and learning. Uh, my graduate work is in the acquisition of motor skills and um, during those studies not only did I study the, the physical learning um, but the cognitive learning of information. And that work really drew me into a field called somatics, which is actually a very old field, one of those uh, old again, new again kind of things. So the idea of somatic practices which unite the mind, body, and spirit um, are actually very old. So practices like yoga, even early uh, f- sports and physical education of ancient societies recognized um, the the equal participation of the mind, the body, and the spirit. So um, I would say somewhere around the late 19th, early 20th century, um, these ideas of, of somatics and, and uniting that tripartite had a bit of a renaissance. Um, in theater and later in dance. There's some very famous practitioners of somatics like Rudolf Laban, who not only devised a language for dance, but uh, delved into uh, factory work, efficiency, ergonomics. So the idea that the body is separate from the mind is is something that's not looked upon kindly by somatic practitioners. And um, when I started teaching college students and, and over the years, I began to see that the, the sheer number of styles and genres that contemporary dancers have to acquire is, is a bit mind-boggling. And if you approach it in a linear fashion, like let's learn Graham technique, let's learn Lamone technique – that could take forever. So I was really interested in devising a system that would help students 
be able to to learn quickly and have flexibility. So my own personal somatics practice and methodology is is more of sort of fine-tuning the plasticity of the nervous system as opposed to learning specific patterns. I like to call it unpatterning. So... Um, you know, just my, my own, my own vocabulary that I like to work with. So, um, and it involves a lot of visualization and mental practice and imagery, as well as sensory information, kinesthetic awareness, um, and a lot of uh, improvisation and self-exploration of movement, and also the idea that you can embody other folks and embody things that are not a particular affinity to your own physical person. So how exactly does somatic dance um, or somatic-based dance relate to memory? You talked about the nervous system. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Can you explain that and like maybe your work with um, kind of looking into the nervous system right. of your body when you're dancing? I think there's, there's two approaches um, in the somatic systems that I've worked with. So uh, many somatic systems, and there are many, by the way, uh, you know, um, no idea is original, right? That's an old saying. But um, many somatic systems work towards something called repatterning, which is to build healthy, authentic, organic patterns in the body. So instead of trying to reproduce movement and build patterns that perhaps the the human body is not built for, you know, ergonomically, um, somatics tends to promote a more authentic, healthy type of patterning that can be used in dance. Uh, And it's really beautiful and it feels good. I was just uh, attending uh, a somatics conference in New York City last weekend, and Bill Evans, who is a, a pioneer of somatic dancing specifically, just taught a beautiful class, and I was reminded how good it can feel in the body, and it can feel organic and authentic. Um, but I think somatics can also work toward, and, and this is a little bit more of what I'm interested in, in Um, strengthening the nervous system. You know, we spend a lot of time strengthening our bodies and we spend a lot of time studying and strengthening our minds. But what about that relationship? How do we facilitate the translation of information um, between sort of more cognitive and kinesthetics modes? Would you say that you can, that your work with somatic movement and within dance can really help rehabilitate um, and even aid our memory in terms of our nervous system. Absolutely. Um, And it's also interesting to to note that a lot of early somatic works, um, especially practitioners in the early 20th century, were interested in physical rehabilitation. Um, They were physical therapists like Bartiniev, so working to to find patterns in the body, and and patterns are related to memory, right? So um, when we talk about somatic dancing, we're looking for those memories and those patterns that that work organically and and work authentically. Um, But also, you know, I think we want to sometimes bypass memory a little bit uh, in in that sort of non-patterned approach and 
be able to, uh, you know, come come to new movement quickly um, and not rely on, on sort of a, a longer. Physical learning takes a long time. It takes much longer than cognitive learning, although it's remembered longer. As you know, the old saying, you never forget how to ride a bike. Well, that's kind of true. And there's a reason for that. Um, what we try and avoid in, in the teaching of dance is to build patterns in the body that might feel good to students, but they're actually not healthy for their bones and their joints and their muscles. Um, and that, that's a, a big part of our somatic teaching. What do your workshops look like here yeah. at Indiana, Indiana University? Um, here at IU, I tend to to not do complete somatic workshops per se. Sometimes I will, but when I work with students, I would, I'll most likely devote a small portion of my class to somatic work. So we'll always do some kind of somatic work, either in the usually in the beginning or the end of class, to help students really find that awareness. On occasion, I will devote entire class sessions. Um, but when I'm traveling and and not not seeing people that I see every day, like I do here at IU, I have the the privilege of. Um, um, of watching them grow over four years, and so I can pace out material a little bit differently. Um, but when I'm traveling and doing workshops, we might start um, just with some, some breath practice. And breath is one of the most original, authentic, uh, somatic somatic practices. Just the, uh, you know, breath can, you can be unaware and you can be aware of breath, but using the breath to move the body um, is something that we might delve into. And we might attach some imagery to that as well. And uh, I like to think of my practice in three parts. So um, as, as we begin, we have sort of, I call it the mind body, which means we're just focusing a little more on the mind and, and warming up um, cognition. And then we might move into body-mind, which is a little bit more of, of proprioception and sensory information. How do things feel? Um, building a little bit of strength, waking up the muscles. There's an awareness there that that happens. And then working into the, the mind-body um, conceptual approach where um, I ask folks in, in my workshops to to experiment with their own, and here's where memory comes in, to experience with their own familiarity with movement. So I might ask someone to uh, investigate physically what the movement reach means to them. How do they see themselves doing that, and how have they experienced that in the past? And then moving past memory how could they see themselves doing that in a new or different way? Okay. So is there like a, a specific group of people that you like to teach somatic <clears throat> dance to? Or is it just anyone? Anyone can benefit from the dance. It can totally be anyone. Um, I've worked mostly with trained dancers, but um, over my a lifetime of teaching, I've actually worked with all populations, children, older adults. I think this this a somatic practice can be um, especially effective for non-trained dancers. And um, I mean, what is that non-trained? What is what is a trained dancer? Just someone that spent more time doing it. That's all. Um, but it can be very accessible for a wide variety 
um, of physical and mental states. You don't focus solely on somatic um, choreography with your students here at IU. No. But mm-hmm. how have your students responded to the little parts that you bring in before yeah. and after sessions? Very well. Um, you know, I think our our approach in our dance program here is is a, a very broad one. And our students, I think, have really come to appreciate and understand the various forms, techniques, genres, studies that we bring to them, and they understand that that all of it is helpful and useful. Um, so they they're very, I would say, really embrace almost anything we can throw at them. Um, so. I read a little bit about how a lot of your work also utilizes um, motion capture technology and real-time video and sound, um, which I was very curious about. How does that work within dance, and what does Mm -hmm. that kind of look like? Well, those were some specific projects I did a number of years ago. using real-time projection with live performance and that's very tricky and uh, you know sometimes your your Bluetooth works and sometimes it doesn't and um, so real-time projection with performance is a very unique and challenging um, opportunity to involve a sort of chance element into performance because uh, you get something different all the time. So I've worked mostly with that in terms of choreography. I did um, under the uh, Institute for Digital Arts and Humanities, IDA, um, I did do a, a motion capture project uh, with a dancer several years ago um, where the dancer was captured in choreography that data was analyzed, then a uh, graphic artist translated the data into actual moving images, and they were played live and projected on the dancer during performance. So, you know, something like that is sort of an intellectual um, endeavor and uh, intriguing way to work. And, you know, it kind of brings about the, lar- the larger question of dance and technology, which is why, why to do it. And I think oftentimes technology can provide a window into understanding and expression that goes beyond uh, canned or predetermined performance. Um, and sometimes, you know, you just got to push the field forward. And that's another reason to do it. I also gather from my research is that you've been traveling across the globe to like yeah. places like London, Italy, China, even, um, and more to teach your choreography and um, you know to continue to practice your dance methods. What is what has been the most important thing that you have learned um, from bringing your choreographies and practices to these places? Um, people are so lovely everywhere. That that would be my biggest takeaway. It, it's been, again, a privilege to be able to, to work with, with dancers from different parts of the world. Um, and they're just always so lovely. You know, I think we're all, we're all mostly good. And um, the students I've worked with and the professional dancers I've worked with have been open, interested, lovely to each other. 
And it, you know, that's something when when you have the opportunity to work across the globe, it you really see our our similarities as human beings, not our differences, and it's uh, it's quite beautiful. Have you noticed any different responses to some of your practices and methods mm-hmm. um, from country to country? Yeah, uh, not so much. I would say. Um, Sometimes I, I notice differences in how how students are or dancers are are trained to to behave in the studio, and that's just part of their specific culture. But um, once we're in there and working, uh, responses have been have been very very positive. I, I think there's also a not just a, a culture of people, but a culture of dancers. Um, you know, dancers are, are quite dedicated to what they do, and I think a lot of folks come to dance because it feel it, it fills a, a need for expression that really can only be satisfied through that that physical practice. And uh, everyone's always happy to be there. What has been your favorite place? So far? oh my gosh, that's not fair. Um, that's not fair at all. I, I've loved everywhere I've traveled. I, I will say um, there's something just so special about the city of Jerusalem. I cannot explain it. Um, but I think because there is a multitude of cultures that you experience there, there's it, it draws you in. Yeah. Um, what has been the most impactful project that you have worked on so far in your career? Hmm to another hard question. I'm, I'm going to answer that in two ways, and I'm going to sort of separate my professional self and my teaching self. Um, several years ago, I had the opportunity, not that long ago, to, uh, to produce a performance of my own work at the Kennedy Center. Um, and that was a, a really special experience uh, to be in that space which is was dedicated to the arts in our country, um, to have all, all my folks there. We had a, a full house. It was it was really quite beautiful to be in our nation's capital. So that was a that was a, a really important project for me. Um, here at IU in 2012, we did a celebration of of contemporary dance here on campus in 80, 85th years celebration gala in the IU auditorium and I I have to say that was one of the highlights of my teaching career here we did four four works that we licensed from professional companies and you know it was a stretch that our our very young students could pull it off just the sheer physicality of of what we were, were were aiming for we had to do it in one day to keep costs down and um I thought, oh gosh, can can they get through it? Uh, they more than got through it. They they rose to the occasion, and then the people the people started coming in, four hundred, eight hundred. We had something like thirteen hundred folks coming that uh, to see that performance. So um, that was a great a great teaching, a very satisfying teaching moment. Do you typically base your choreographies on? Um, any type of specific topic or um, anything that you've been really interested in with your research um, or do they all sort of relate to somatic movement? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, 
you know, I like to be, I like to dance about something um, when I make work in the studio. And as I sort of look back over a little retrospective, retrospective on my own works over time, I, I see a real theme, and I think that theme is is psychology and sociology. I'm just super interested in the human experience um, and in relationships, and sort of no matter what I'm working on, whether there's a larger theme or a broader theme or a more narrow theme, that always seems to be there in some respect. And I think that's true of, of most choreographers. Um, <clears throat> I just came with a meeting um, with some folks at the IU Auditorium about the upcoming Bill T. Jones performance. And I've also had the privilege of watching his work over time. And there are also always these themes of community and isolation and acceptance. Um, so I, I think in a way choreography can be very autobiographical and it can really reflect what's on your mind what's in your heart yeah what's in your body I definitely agree with that I mean like any <coughs> any type of art is yeah. storytelling it is it, it's storytelling and I think um, in our field we don't always have the answers and, and the stories aren't aren't always linear you know um, sometimes they start in the middle like a la Quentin Tarantino but um it's interesting to to sort of track someone's their process, their methods. It it says a lot about their person. And often, when you watch someone's choreography, you can see their mind working. You know, you get a little insight into the way they think and the way they feel. I love that. Yeah. I wanted to talk um, about two of your specific projects. One project that you had completed or was it completed? Breath, Light, and Stone? Mm -hmm. Was that completed? Yes. Okay. Yes. I wanted to talk about that, Breath, Light, and Stone, um, because I saw a short clip of yeah. it, and it looked amazing. It was in a limestone factory, right? Absolutely. It was in the, the old Woolery limestone mill. That's cool. So I wanted to ask, how did this project involve memories? Because when I read in a caption, it talked about uncovering distant memories. Yeah, yeah. Um, wow, this was a great project. Um, really one of up there with my top favorites. Uh, my colleague Alan Hahn and I were interested in, in making a screen dance. Um, and screen dance is a, you know, really a, a field that is, is surging right now. Uh, and, and Alan had this, had fallen in love with the, the Woolery site. So we, we visited. Um, and, you know, of course, there's something about being in a place that is now, you know, fairly dilapidated and unkept and unused, um, vacated. There's something about being there, just conjuring up, well, what was it like when it was working? And so I think that that idea of, <clears throat> of the building itself holding memories of people became really intriguing to us. And as we started to build this film, which, by the way, was financed through A New Frontiers in the Arts and Humanities Grant, thank you, um, 
we began to develop this nonlinear story, and we wanted to use as much of the space as possible. So, you know, we sort of sought out these little pockets of the mill, well, what, what might have happened. And again, it, it was very nonlinear and a little vague, but it, and it was more about relationships. So what was maybe this relationship? And so uh, and, and I, uh, a reviewer had written something about um, – seeing those those secrets and um and those untold memories that were privy only to to those who were directly in it so i thought that was interesting how do when you're choreographing uh choreographing a piece like that how what kind of movement what kind of dance do you like to choreograph to express that memory and that relationship. Yeah. Um, I, I like to work definitely with small groups of people. Um, that helps me sort of get at the heart of that nonverbal communication and um, breaking down sort of the barrier between what might be highly stylized or technical movement and a little more relaxed, authentic, direct approach. So I often start there just with, you know, two, three dancers and some simple touch exercises and to see where where that might lead. So a lot of it is very investigative, you know, really um, after researching and lo lots of thinking and pre-planning and then coming in with actual people. And, of course, the dancers themselves greatly inform what happens and their relationships with each other. Do you ever have to... Because, I mean, I feel like somatic movement um, would tie in great here because they have to, you know, go back into their mental instead of just their physical, mm -hmm. oh, I'm a dancer, I'm doing these movements. Right. But, like, do you ever, like, meet with them one-on-one um, -on -one and, and talk about how they have to view things mentally and spiritually? Yeah, I think um, there's sort of a part of my somatic workshops where I, I ask um, I ask participants to participate in a sort of free flow of movement, um, almost like journaling, free flow journaling, but let your body do the writing and speaking. And that's very much how I approach choreography, especially with dancers that are trained to, to work that way. Um, where does the body want to go next? And there has to be a certain amount of, of trust in the intelligence of the body um, and recognizing that the body knows things. Um, again, the body is not separate from the mind. There are memories in your bones and your muscles and your cells and your skin um, that can be trusted. And oftentimes I just have to get in there myself. Sometimes I have to see where my own body wants to go to make the work. Um, so the next project I wanted to talk about um, was a project that you're organizing called the Moving Memory Project. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, this is very exciting, and this is the the Themester um, co-curricular project that uh, will be happening in the studio theater um, in November, and it's very exciting. I have a colleague; her name's Stephanie Nelson. Uh, she runs a program. Uh, called Dance Italia, and she also has her own performance group, which is sort of multi multi continental, uh, European, and also American. 
and she has uh, created a work called A, My Name Is, dot, 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 um, which is based on the experiences of uh, caregivers of Alzheimer's patients, and it's a beautiful dance theater work, um, and when I saw it, I thought, how wonderful to be able to bring it to Indiana University as part of the Themester project. Um, involves students working with professional dancers. Um, and then also in conjunction with that, um, sort of the, the overriding move, the Moving Memory Project, I'll also be showing a piece uh, as part of the evening with two, do, two dancers called Memory Object. And this is a work I just showed at New York a couple weeks ago. Um, it was shown at the Indiana Dance Festival, premiered at uh, Indianapolis Fringe last year. But it's, it really revolves around the idea of, of two individuals who are, are near or near end of life or, or in their, their elder years and how the concept of, of space um, and art making informs memory and, and what that might look like and, and how memories fade and resurge and when they surge, how do they come back? Are they accurate? And that's a whole nother conversation, right? When you read like eyewitness research and, um, you know, our, our memories are fallible um, and things can always be remembered better or worse than they actually were. But um, so those two those two dances will be shown together and we'll also be working with some outreach to probably do a caregiver workshop to outreach uh, for the program, again, involving students. So um, it's going to be a really tremendous opportunity for our, our community. I hope lots of folks will come see it. When could you know IU students and members of the community expect to be able to come see this? Project. Performances will be held over two days, November 15 and 16, in the Studio Theater in the Lee Norville Theater and Drama Center. Um, it's free and open to the public. It is limited seating, so the event will be free but ticketed. Remembering and Forgetting is a podcast produced for the Mester at IU. Special thanks to IU's College of Arts and Sciences, Tracy B., Ken Smith, and the Media School for today's episode. Music for this episode by Jack Brown. For more discussions on memories surrounding the tragedies of the Holocaust, the mysteries of brain science, and more, check out the rest of Remembering and Forgetting. Thank you for listening. <laughs>